And Merry Christmas to all of you. Amen. It's strange, you know, we as the body of Christ, as we celebrate Christmas, it's uh, becoming more and more difficult to actually express that in the public square. Uh, I've been on a mission this Christmas to just kind of, I was in Home Depot, and it, and, you know, they were saying happy almost everything, you know, happy tool day or whatever. I don't even know what they were saying, but it, you know, I kept repeating Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, and finally one lady came over that was actually, you know how they guard the, the self-checkout thing? They always have the spy there that's watching to see that you put everything in the bag. And she was over in the corner, and I was, you know, people were, Merry Christmas, you know, God bless you. You know, Jesus is the reason. We were talking to all these people that were in line, and she came over and she said, I just want you to know, in spite of what you heard, Merry Christmas. <laughs> <You> know, <so. laughs> God is good. Amen. We're going to be in Luke's Gospel this morning as we're studying that book. So if you turn to chapter 2 and the glory of Christmas. and You know, for us as we celebrate Christmas, you know, yes, there are all kinds of family traditions and things that we do. And every one of those things, uh, frankly to me, are just an example for those of us who love the Lord of the goodness of God. And so I don't want anybody, you know, feeling bad. Uh, we have had a Christmas tree our entire married life. We have a Christmas tree. And I feel sorry for the people who have to, you know, make it about the cultish practice of Saturnalia and decorating trees and all those things. So if God's blessed you and you have a Christmas tree, ours is a family history. We have ornaments from day one till now. And it's just this wonderful thing that we do. But it's surely not the glory of Christmas. The glory of Christmas is the Lord Jesus Himself. And He was not an accident. Nor was His birth something that mankind can look at and take credit for. And in fact, it happened right on cue, just as God said it would. And as we take a step back in time, if we were to go back to the prophet Micah, if we were to go back to the prophet Isaiah, if we were to look back at what the Old Testament would say about the Messiah who would come, we would find the basics of the Christmas story in the Old Testament, not just in the New. And so this morning as we begin, from a human perspective, Christmas has certain meanings to certain people. From a human perspective... We, we look at the transition of what Christmas now means compared to maybe what it was uh, when I was young. You know, I think back to the 1950s and 60s and what Christmas was. When people turned on their Christmas lights during those days, the whole city dimmed. You know, it's just we had these huge, you know, now we have the LED lights. We used to have those big, huge you know, two-inch-long bulbs each, and, and, you know, you couldn't actually turn on the lights in your house because you throw your main breaker on your power panel, you know. There are, there are Christmas traditions, but from God's perspective, it's always been about Jesus and nothing else. And so this morning, from God's perspective, we find the glory of Christmas. Let's pray. Father, thank You that at the beginning of the beginning of time, Lord Jesus was never an afterthought. It wasn't an accident. 
wasn't just simply one of many children born in Judea that year that you put your hand on. He was the plan, the Savior of the world, Emmanuel, God with his people. And Lord, this story is more than precious to us. It is life to us. Without Jesus, there is no peace. Without Jesus, there is no life. And it's him that we celebrate. We thank you for that glorious first Christmas. We pray that as we study your word, that you'd bless us, Lord, with the real meaning, with the glory of it. Could we just step in maybe to the place that the shepherd stood, perhaps just being in the corner, maybe the innkeeper, would you give us a glimpse of the real glory? We love you, we praise you, we bless you, we ask all this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Verse 1 here in Luke 2, And it came to pass in those days. And again, as I said, in, in those days... From a human perspective, there were probably countless children that were born in the region of Judea. The city of David, which is Bethlehem, was a very, very promising city if you were a Jew. You would have the heritage and the lineage of David the great king. And so, in those days means that time in which God had been at work from the very beginning. It wasn't just the day that Jesus was born, but on that promised day that the Lord had foretold of. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And yes, God indeed does use pagan kings. He uses decrees. He uses shepherds. He uses taxes. He uses mangers. He uses anything and everything that he wishes to accomplish his purposes. And from his perspective, there's nothing too hard for the Lord. But as we look at this story, it's important to put it into context. Because Jesus is going to be born of Joseph and Mary as far as their earthly parents. But Joseph is not his actual real father, and yet Joseph is going to be registered. He's going to go to the city of his birth. But they don't live there. They live roughly 65 miles to the north in Nazareth. It is an arduous journey. Mary is at the bursting point. Show of hands, you ladies in this room today that have had children, how many of you would get on a donkey in the last days of the pregnancy? A guy, yeah. It would, only a guy would raise his hand to that. If I gave you a list of ten things that you would not do, that would be on the top of the list of ten things that you would not do. Your husband comes to you, honey, we're going to take a 65-mile journey on a donkey. You're, all, you're getting out the gun. You're like, you go, I'm staying. Isn't going to happen. But God uses the, the acts of a pagan king to do the one thing that would stimulate them 
to take that 65-mile journey at this point in time in life. Because it wouldn't be something as simple, well, you know, let's go down and see our cousins in Bethlehem. It wasn't, you know, it's it's warmer, it's a little cool here near the Sea of Galilee up on this ridge. Why don't we go down to Bethlehem? It's a little warmer down there. None of those things would have sufficed. And this census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria, and so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. And as you look at this whole event... It's very, very helpful to realize that God had already dictated where this was going to take place. In Micah, in chapter 5, in verse 2, and it says, But you, Bethlehem, Apratha, this, this little tiny settlement. If you go to Bethlehem today, it's in the West Bank territories occupied by the Palestinian uh, Liberation Organization. It's a city that if you went there today, you wouldn't find anything remarkable about it. There wasn't much remarkable about it then, except it was at the crossroads of a trading route that went to the sea. And so if you came from Jordan and you traveled to Bethlehem, it was the stopping point before you could split and head slightly north uh, to Jerusalem, or you could head across on the coast and you would eventually come uh, to the city of Acho. You would likely stop in Jaffa on your way there. But it was a out-of-the-way place. But it was famous because it was there that David was born. It was his birthplace, the great King David. But it says, though you're little among all the thousands of Judah, speaking of all the little settlements, you have to remember that there were settlements everywhere. Basically, any place that there was a reliable water supply, any place that there was a traveling route, a road, a trail, any place that someone could make a subsistence living, there was a, a town. Here in our day and time, you know, there's only a handful of really legitimate towns here on the mountain stretching for a distance from Crestline to Big Bear of some 40 miles. But back then, they would literally be a mile or two apart. If there was a water supply in a canyon, there'd be a few homes there. And so it is very clear that the Lord is making a distinction between all of the little settlements in that region of Judea and one town very specific, Bethlehem. Now remember that this is seven centuries before Jesus is born. Again, we turn to the Dead Sea Scrolls. And we look at them and we go, thank you, Jesus, for a shepherd boy, a few rocks, and some clay jars on a hillside next to the Dead Sea. Because the book of Micah, also contained in the Dead Sea Scrolls, in its entirety. So this particular passage, we have a copy of it that was written in about 182 B.C. B.C.E., if you so care about such things. Before the common era. I still like before Christ. Personally. And he will be a ruler in Israel whose goings forth have been from old and from everlasting. That is an interesting thing. Think about what's being said there. From before old and unto everlasting. That means whoever this person is that will be born will be eternal in nature. Don't know how that's going to happen in Bethlehem of all places. 
And yet as we tune in to our story here in Luke chapter 2, we find that very thing happening. Basically, it necessitated a miracle because nobody was going to make this happen simply by uh, changing the, the current cultural climate of the day. This was something that had to take the hand of God moving in time. And so as I read this story, I, I look at what happens, and, and God sets in motion the machinery of mankind. We don't often think of that. You know, the average person believes that we are just a collection of random happenings. That, you know, we go about our lives and this happens and that happens and we actually just simply react or respond. But from God's perspective, many, 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 many jillions of years ago, Jillions is not a word, but I like to use it because it's better than anything else I can think of because it's not real. I don't know when it was. But in history past, in times past, Father God, God incarnate, Christ Jesus and the Holy Spirit get together in heaven and have a little confab. They have a corporate meeting, if you will, in days past. And, and God put in place all of these things before they ever happened. We often see the world as the world sees itself. And I want to encourage you that God has his hand on this earth. So much so that he says one day he's going to come back and take ownership of what's his. That's why he sent Jesus in the first place, is to redeem this earth and all who are on it that will declare him as Lord. And so they go to be registered. It seems like kind of a carnal you know, action of a pagan king. But from God's perspective, it's God moving upon the hearts of man to do exactly what God intends. Never forget that God can work in the ordinary things. God doesn't always work in the extraordinary, but in the ordinary And so God plans these things out in bygone eras. In verse 4, it goes on to say, And Joseph went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth. If you go to modern-day Israel, and you go from Nazareth down to Bethlehem, you can make it an hour and a half. It's not that far. But you're in a car on a paved road. And you are traveling at 55, 60 miles an hour. It's not the same trip when you're dragging along your pregnant wife and a donkey. (laughs) Not the same trip. And guys, admit it. When we go on road trips, we don't stop for the restroom. Amen? We just don't. You pregnant ladies, not so much. So here they are on a donkey on a dirt road full of ruts, full of rocks, over every hill, over every dale. Some of the most desolate land in all of Palestine lies from Nazareth south towards Jerusalem on down further south to Bethlehem. It's just rocky, gnarly. You you look at it and go, why would anybody ever go through there? And in fact, it's that region that we will come eventually to the story of the Good Samaritan. It's so bad that only robbers and thieves lived in that general part of Judea. And so they're making this journey out of comfy Nazareth with its nice spring there in the middle of the valley. 
into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, or house of bread, because he was of the house and of the lineage of David. When we look at this, if you have a King James Bible, you, you have a word in there that's improperly translated, basically. It says they went to be taxed. No, the purpose of the registration was so that later they could be taxed, but they went to be registered. It's how the Roman government operated. They wanted to keep tabs of everyone and everything, and so they would go. They would announce who the head of the household was, how many siblings they had, how many children that they then subsequently had, where they lived, the region that they were uh, engaged in any type of trade, and it was from there that the Romans would then tax them. So they weren't going to be taxed. They were going to be registered. And so as they travel you find this this kind of crazy journey. It'd be like you and I, your wife's about to give birth, and all of a sudden, well, honey, we need to go down and down to the IRS and stand in line for a few days. It was not something you would think of doing. You would not wake up in the morning and go, wow, I need to go down to the IRS. I just forgot, honey, we've got to file our tax forms. Not likely to happen. To be registered, the New King James said, which is the correct word, with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. Would you please underline betrothed? It's very important that you understand Galilean marriage and betrothal at this point. Because they're, they're actually, in the eyes of the Jewish people, married. However, they have not yet been married. They're just betrothed. They're, they're in essence, what we would call engaged. They're going to be married. They're living in that period of time. Normally it was around one year. And from the time that the parents got together and they would exchange, okay, here's what the dowry's going to be and here's the amount of money that we need to have. And they would go and begin to develop a house and actually have somewhat of a living relationship during that period of time. But the bride in the latter stages of betrothal would go back to her parents' home and wait for the bridegroom to come. They're betrothed. Why? Because the baby that she's carrying is not Joseph's. Luke points this out for us. He's protecting her. If she had stayed home without Joseph and had that baby, the shame that would have come upon her would have been monumental. And so Joseph protects her by taking her on this journey to Bethlehem. And so it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son. Notice it doesn't say their firstborn son. It's correctly translated as well. It was her firstborn son. This was not Joseph's firstborn son. It was her firstborn son. Again, as we turn to our scriptures, as we turn to the Old Testament, we find that this too was prophesied in the Old Testament. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 7, verse 14, said that there would be a virgin who would give birth to a child, and that child's name would be something very specific. His name would be Emmanuel which means God with us. So this baby who is going to be born is not Joseph's biological son. It's Mary's son. 
in that sense. But more importantly, it's God's Son. Again, the prophet Isaiah. Chapter 9, verse 6. The child who was born, born to Mary, Joseph, but the son who was given, God's only begotten son who was given. And he shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, and Prince of Peace. Amen? All ties into what the angels are going to declare. Not new news in heaven. Old news in heaven. New news on earth. And so it was, while they were there in the days that were completed for her to be delivered, that she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. You see, Jews were very excited about their history. And as you look at both Matthew's account and Luke's account, Luke writing as a Gentile, Matthew as a Jew, as you look at these accounts, they were very, very meticulous at keeping their lineage. Because you had to be able to prove who you were in order to be part of the Jewish people. You you couldn't just come from nowhere and be obscure. And so this is a monumental deal. And actually the Romans helped preserve the lineage of Christ, unbeknownst to them. If you read the book of Ezra, if you read Samuel's account of the people, if you were a bad son of Israel, your name was blotted out from amongst the roles of the people. And so to be included was to make sure that they could remember who you were and where you came from. And so here as Mary begins to realize what's going on in, in the fullness of it, remember what she said in her Magnificat there in uh, chapter 1 in verse 46 to 55 as she prays. She had the word of the Lord in her heart. She knew. By this time, she's going, okay, this is the real deal. I love the fact that as she prays there in chapter 1, she's recounting Scripture. Remember who she's related to. She's related to Elizabeth. Zechariah, who is a priest in the temple, she heard the Old Testament word of the Lord. She understood fully. I wonder if on that journey she was a little more susceptible to go knowing what Scripture said about the coming Messiah, that he would be born in Bethlehem. Because remember, she pronounced very clearly her faith in chapter 1. She says, I I know who this is. I haven't known a man, but I know I'm pregnant. And the child isn't Joseph's. And I haven't been unfaithful to him in betrothal. But there's a baby coming. And it's from the Holy Spirit. I think she knew her Bible. And so they begin this journey to Bethlehem. It's kind of sad if you go to Bethlehem today because of the way you know the Palestinians have kind of taken over that area, and again, I'm not against the Palestinian people per se, but it it is now uh, very difficult to go and view some of the biblical sites because they're, they're in occupied territory. 
There's an interesting thing that's happening right now. There's a there's a Bethlehem businessman that wants to, for those of you that know anything about Brazil, the largest statue of Jesus in the world is on the top of Sugarloaf Mountain in Rio de Janeiro. It's the, the Christ the Redeemer statue. They're going to build one that's taller than that in Bethlehem, supposedly. It's going to be interesting to see how that gets pulled off in an Arab-controlled area. Gigantic 100-foot statue of Jesus on top of a hill. It should so kind of keep an eye on that this coming year, because the Israeli government has promised to fund part of it. So this this could be kind of interesting. But in that day and time, as they begin to look forward into this particular story, I, I will elaborate on this on Tuesday night. But I will give you just a little bit of a preview. We think of an inn, you know, we think of like a hotel, we think of a motel, and. Some of you, you've been around long enough when, when the journey itself was kind of a vacation. And you traveled, if you used to get on Route 66, and remember you could drive here in, in the southern part of the states, and you head over and you go to, you know, you'd go over to New Mexico, and you'd see all the signs, you know, Chief Yellow Horse, 195 miles. And you'd get there, and there'd be like this motel, and it's got like four rooms in it. And the guy that came out to greet you were kind of afraid that, you know, he probably didn't have all of his brain cells operating at one time. And you would get to that motel and you were kind of thankful if it didn't have black widows in the room kind of thing, you know. That would have been good compared to this day and age, okay? One of those old funky motels, if you drive north on 395, some of those old ones still left there in Olancha, south of you know, the Owens Dry Lake, and you look at him, you go, somebody actually stayed there? That would be a really nice place in this day and time, okay? Helps you put it into perspective. An inn at that time would not have been an inn at all. It would have likely been somebody's home. And if you want the rest of this story, come on Tuesday, I'll give it to you. But that inn that they stayed at, undoubtedly had a stable. That stable was likely a cave. Usually the animals stayed outside of the main living area, though sometimes the animals and the people coexisted together. Sometimes they were actually in the house. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not real fond of even sleeping with our dogs at times, which they kind of do whatever they want sometimes. We have Labradors. They can jump 10 feet in the air. They just jump up on our bed. And, you know, sleeping with a dog is one thing. Sleeping with a cow is yet another, okay? <laughs> sleeping with, you know, sheep, another. Goats, another. And it was that day and time that the animals were so valuable that the owners didn't let them get too terribly far away. And so... Many times an inn would just simply be what we would call a bed and breakfast. People would come, they would stay in your house, you would feed them a little tiny meal, and that was an inn. In this case, there was no room in the little tiny house, and so all that was available was the manger, the cave, the stable. The cave that is currently believed to be the birthplace of Jesus uh, Emperor Constantine caused a church to be built over that cave in Bethlehem in about the 4th century. And so uh, we now have this church, the Church of uh, 
St. Constantine's the Church of the Nativity is there today, and you can look at it, but it really has nothing to do with the actual scene then. What you had then was a dirty, smelly, stinky, animal-filled environment that was likely about the last place on earth uh, that anyone would ever want to have a child. Our, our second son was nearly born on the side of the 330. So, you know, we here who live outside of the normal, you know, there's a hospital just down the street, we can kind of get the picture. But I would certainly have rather had our child born in a car than in this place. You know, our, our Christmas cards, you know, are some of the things that we have locked into our memory, these really sanitary, beautiful, serene scenes of Jesus being born in a, you know, beautifully sculpted manger and all of those things really are just simply not the picture. That's not how Jesus came into the world. It was a cold, windy, drafty cave. And it was there that the Son of Man, Emmanuel, God with His people, Jesus, Jehovah who is salvation, would be born. You and I probably wouldn't want to be born there. In verse 8 he goes on to say, And now there were in the same country. It's not talking about a country in the sense that we think of countries. It's talking about the countryside. In other words, the place that Bethlehem resides. And Bethlehem is in an area of southern Judea that's mostly little hills. They're not terribly tall mountains, but hills and valleys, and in each valley there's a little stream. And so in that general vicinity, because most of those hillsides are quite rocky, they're suitable for next to nothing except for the grazing of sheep and goats, because they will eat anything. Okay, they Absolutely, that's why when you watch, you could, can anything good come from Menifee? When you're driving south on the 215, remember for those of you that have been around a while, when you used to travel on the 395 when it was still just concrete, and remember the joint every 10 feet, so when you were in your large metal American car going, and you'd get to what was then Sunny Mead, and you'd look and there'd be sheep on both sides of the road grazing. There was nothing out there, just sagebrush and weeds. The same thing was true then. It was just weeds and dirt. There were in that same country shepherds literally living out in the fields. Why? Because their flocks were extremely valuable. And not much went on in that area of the world except people raising sheep and those who were sheep stealing. Thieves. Robbers. Wasn't a lot of farming going on. That happened more towards the coast and further north towards Nazareth, where there was water from the Jordan. In this area, not so much. And they were keeping watch over their flock by night, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them. So here they are, basically doing what they normally do. And for some strange reason... The Jewish people, and I think a lot of it had to do with their history, despised shepherds. So much so that shepherds, if they were brought into court, their testimony wasn't even allowed in a court of law. That's how low on the rung a shepherd was. Children were at about the same level. 
So if you were a shepherd, you kind of had the place and society of a child. It's like anybody can do that, and sometimes they would actually allow their children to watch the sheep because it didn't take a whole lot of mental acuity. However, an interesting thing about the shepherds, very often they were quite wealthy, especially in this particular area of the world, because it was relatively close to Jerusalem. And everyone needed a lamb. Everyone needed sheep. And so if you were going to to temple to offer up a sacrifice, very often you would stop in the region of Bethlehem, take that sheep, and then it would be brought before the priests, those serving in the temple courts, and then there the sheep would be offered up unto the Lord. So even though they may have not been the sharpest tools in the shed, uh, they were pretty well off, many of them. But they were out doing what they always did, which was watching over their flocks by night. And behold, the angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were greatly afraid. Now remember at this point in time, nobody's actually saved yet. That isn't going to happen until Jesus said to Telestai, it's finished. Then people could actually become one of God's children. But at this point in time, there are a lot of people who are wondering when Messiah is going to come. They were greatly afraid. They believed as much as they knew to believe at that point in time. And the angel says to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring to you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. I want you to notice a few words here. All people. Good tidings of great joy to all people. The world sometimes doesn't see things from that perspective. Matter of fact, a lot of the world would just prefer that Christians just simply cease to exist. Amen? You you look at the public square today, it's like you can say anything you want, as long as it isn't Jesus is the reason for the season. You can put up any vile banner that you feel like putting up. You can do almost anything except pronounce that Jesus Christ is Lord. For those of you that missed it, we showed a video on Wednesday night of your United States Air Force band doing a flash mob in the Smithsonian Institute, and they actually sang Jesu, Joy of Man's Desiring, and Joy to the World, and they actually left in the Savior part. So all is not lost. Just want you to make sure you Amen? He says, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people, for there is born to you. You ever think of it in a personal way? You could have been amongst that group of shepherds, standing with them on that day, and the angel could have looked you right in the eye, born to you this day. Because He's your Savior. He's our Savior. He is your Emmanuel. He's my Emmanuel. He is my Jesus. He is your Jesus. There is only one Lord, one faith, one hope, one baptism, and there's one Lord over all, and His name is Jesus, who is our Emmanuel. Born to you, shepherds, this day. 
in the city of David. Can you imagine what they were thinking? You mean he's my Emmanuel? Who is Christ the Lord? I love the fact that the angel puts the whole thing together. You see, sometimes people will use the name Christ, they'll use the name Jesus, and they'll leave off the Lord part. As we like to say, how convenient. Because Jesus Christ is Lord, amen? He is the anointed one. It's what He came to do. He came to save mankind from our sin. To defeat death once and for all. To bring about eternal life. But He also is my Master. And is so to all who believe. And so these shepherds standing in the fields get this incredible picture. Notice three things here. Glory to God in the highest. Tremendous praise to the Lord. This is a heavenly event. This is not an earthly event. Happened on earth, but it was a heavenly event. That's why the great praise. That's why the angels were excited. Remember, they they had kind of had word that this was happening a little bit earlier. Amen? We don't know when the angels got created, but we know they've been around for a while. And I've often wondered that all the angels in heaven, if they're, you know, they're ramping up right now for the rapture of the church, I'm pretty sure they were kind of excited about the coming of Jesus. The highest kind of praise, great praise. But notice the peace. Now you know why Isaiah 9, 6 says what it says. Peace on earth. Peace to all men upon whom God's favor rests is actually how it renders. Peace to all men upon whom God's favor rests. You see, to as many as received Him, to them, He gave the ability to become the sons of God. To believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is to be saved. To all who call upon the name of the Lord, they shall be saved. To all men upon whom God's favor rests, His unmerited favor, that's the definition of grace. God's grace brings you God's favor. To them, you have peace. And, oh, beloved, is that a different kind of peace. Amen? It's not protection from every storm. It's not going to free you from every disease. It won't keep you from going through financial difficulty. It won't even keep you from getting killed by some crazy person. But you'll have peace in that storm. You'll have undeniable peace, not peace, as Jesus said, as the world gives, do I give you, but my peace I give you. It's the peace of an eternal perspective. That's why this peace is greater than any other kind of peace. Let me be clear. I would love for there to be world peace. But I happen to know that the only way that world peace is coming is when the Prince of Peace is actually the King. That's when it's going to happen. And until then, 
The only people who know the real peace of God is those who are God's. You know, I very frequently end up in situations where somebody's in their last days on this earth. That's never very pleasant. It doesn't really matter who it is. But I can tell you this, there is a marked difference between those who know the Lord and have His peace and those who don't. Because when you have the Prince of Peace, then the peace that you're talking about is eternal peace. Peace with God. Peace that only comes from that relationship that we now have because Jesus Christ is Lord. And when I have that kind of peace, then I have the peace to step through the door of eternity and go, Lord, if I had you on this earth, then whatever is later is better. Amen? He was talking about eternal peace. That's why it was great peace. And it was also a great purpose. Think on it for just a moment. Can you imagine? Even the Greeks knew that. The Romans knew that. They were People to this day are still looking for the purpose for life. I've had some really interesting conversations lately in my own family. You know, what is the meaning of life? Had a conversation with my mom. She doesn't know the Lord. And as I'm talking to her, I'm just going, Mom, this life isn't the end. Well, I just don't have peace. That's right, you don't have peace. Because the peace you need is not that your bills are paid. It's not that your life is all that you hoped it would be. It's knowing that the moment you take your last breath, you're going to open your eyes in heaven. That's peace. Because then no matter what happens here, it's all good. But if you don't have that, then you don't have peace. You may have a circumstantial lack of conflict in your life for a time. You may go through a period of wonderful health for a time. But you are one day going to take your last breath. Jesus came as the Prince of Peace. Eternal peace. Peace with God. Freedom from sin. And its penalty, death. Great purpose for which Jesus came. He wasn't just, you know, well, here's this wonderful baby that glows in the dark. You have a lot of people on earth that think that, right? You know, they, 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 for the, that's Christmas to them. That manger scene right there. Glowing baby, halo. Look, peace. That's not what they were talking about. The angels were very specific. 
The coming Christ would remove the barriers of sin that had separated man from Adam. Still does today. To know Him is to know peace. You see, there was great purpose in His coming. Opened a way that all of us can draw near. You ever notice how when a baby comes into the room, everyone loses their dignity? I, I'm i bad. I mean, I see little... I'm like, I start making weird noises and faces and... You know, I don't even care what happens. I could have, like, my hair painted green. I wouldn't care. It's because we can relate to babies, can't we? They don't require anything of us. You can just be you. I love the fact that my Savior came to this world in a way that would prevent no one from coming to Him. If he'd have come, think about it. If he'd have come any other way, you know, the world thinks of these things. You know, some, you know, great event in the the heavens open up, and the hand of God brings down a, you know, a fully grown person and sets him someplace, and you know, the voice of God booms out. Here is my son. Here, you know, he does all kinds of crazy things. People would go, man, that's just. I don't even know how to relate to that. But a baby, I can relate. You can relate. In verse 16 it says, And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Out of all of the places for the Son of God to end up a feed trough. You know, we have the sanitized version, the one that's raised up off the ground. You know, it always has the two legs like this, and you've got the babies. I doubt it very seriously. Chances are it was probably a hollowed-out log. If it was that at all, it may have simply been nothing more than a pile of hay on the ground. We don't know. We're not told. But I know this. It was no sealy perfect sleeper. It wasn't, you know, the Benford 9000 air adjustable bed. It was dirt and hay and probably picked through by Joseph to get most of the manure out of it. And there was Jesus. And the clothes they were wearing weren't royal robes. They were likely very coarsely woven cloth. It was about as humble a scene as you can possibly imagine. And now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told of them concerning this child. You see, the the angels now have given them really all they need to know. It's just this incredible picture of great praise, great peace, and great purpose. They're, they're, they got it. They understand And because of that, they've got a message now to go share with the world. And because of that, you have a message to go share with the world. That peace that you have, that praise that you offer, 
And verse 19 says, But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had both heard and seen as it was told to them. The details of this, when we read it, there's a lot of speculation that goes on at Christmas time. But I can tell you this, Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God. And He was born in a manger so that every one of us could identify with Him. And so as we reflect back on these things, you see the prophet Isaiah had further told us in Isaiah 53 a very significant portion of what these angels would say in a slightly different way. There in verse 6 of the 53rd chapter of the book of Isaiah, it says, All we, like sheep, have turned away. For everyone has turned unto his own way. You see, when Jesus came, he came for everybody. Amen? For the all, for all of us who can't identify with the Christ child. But it goes on to say, in verse 11, For he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied, and by the knowledge of this, my righteous servant, many shall be justified. you got a choice to make. That baby is sufficient for every last one of us. The work that Christ did while he's on this earth was more than enough for anyone, no matter what you've done, where you've been, no matter how you've lived your life, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. But he only does that for those who believe. People don't like that. And so as I look at this, I see some closing things as we wrap this up this morning. How extreme is that power? Think about it. Christ is able to save the all. That babe in the manger was more than sufficient for your life and mine. I don't know about you. I did a little experiment one year, and I started writing down all the things that I could remember that I had ever done that were displeasing to God. Now, I'm not encouraging you to actually do this. If you want to, it's actually kind of interesting. Because you find out you're pretty much a scuzz. <laughs> a scum. You definitely don't deserve the grace of God. You'll figure that out really clearly. After about the tenth page, you're just like, oh. <laughs> How extreme is His power? Because no matter where you were born, maybe you were born in a situation that isn't the best. Christ is able. And He can save. A second thing you see from God's perspective as He creates the world, we kind of look at it and go, you know, why? But notice the promise, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior which is Christ the Lord. That's the promise. You can be saved. I can be saved. If this life is all there is, yikes! If your life is whether you can get the Kohl's cash, yikes! 
If you're holding out for one of those 52-inch flat screens that went on sale at Walmart at the bottom of the the hill, yikes. You, You see, the promise is a Savior, not to save you from everything and to give you everything. The promise is that when this earthly life is over, the best is yet to come. Amen? You see, that is the answer to everything. Because I can always find reasons to be disgruntled about my current situation. Amen? I I don't know about you, but I do that every once in a while. I I know none of you ever have a pity party, but every once in a while, you know, the enemy will get in there and feed you a thought, and you're just like, oh, I can't believe that happened or this happened. or You know, why is this and why is that? You just go on and on and on and on. And then all of a sudden, it flashes through your mind. Oh, yeah, Jesus. The promise. And all of a sudden, uh, you, you just start thinking differently. It's like, Lord, thank you that you've given me eternal life. And probably most of the folks, most of us in this room, they're a little older than some of the rest of you. We can tell you emphatically as you start to get a little older, you start to look forward to heaven. Amen? I'm looking forward to no more pain, no more sorrow. No, no more agonizing over the things of this earth. The promise is eternal. And how extensive is that provision for these things? It's not just His extreme power. It's not just His exciting promise. Look at how extensive the provision is. Which shall be to all people. Amen? Nobody's outside of it. If you want Jesus, He wants you. Amen? It's to everyone. Anyone who will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved what your Bible says. Anybody. And it doesn't give a criteria of a bunch of things you need to do. You know, you fill out your doctrinal paperwork before you can get saved. It's no. It's believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, religion puts up walls. Relationship tears every wall down. good for everybody. How extraordinary is that peace? Glory to God in the highest places and peace on earth. If you know Jesus, you have peace. That's extraordinary peace. That's not ordinary peace. Some people have peace when they pay their bills every month. You know, you make it to that last check and you got three bucks left. It's like, wow, I got peace. Some people have peace when they wake up and, you know, just they have that happy feeling. They go downstairs and I have a certain amount of peace when I smell coffee brewing, you know. It's just like, wow, peace. You read the newspaper and there's no bad news on the front page. Yeah. It's the one in my mind. The funnies, yes. Even there. 
not the peace that the world has. It's extraordinary peace. It's peace that says in spite of what's going on in the world, it's all going to be fine one day. And then the praise. How ecstatic is it? The shepherds return glorifying and praising God for all the things that they'd heard and seen. Do you realize you're supposed to do that too? You who have received such great peace, who've been the beneficiaries of that extreme power, who know the exciting promise, who've been overcome by that extraordinary peace, it should produce in you great praise. You should be able to do what the shepherds did, what the angels did, which is to shout the name of Jesus. Amen? Let's make sure we do that. Because the world needs His peace. Because it will fix everything. And one day we know that's what He's going to do. But in the meantime, wouldn't it be awesome if we had a little of His peace right now? Let's praise Him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You, God, for this amazing season when we remember, Jesus, what You gave up, the glories of heaven for a wooden box. Lord, that You put off that heavenly realm to come to this earthly world. And God, we are just so amazingly blessed to be called Your children. And God, we ask that as You work in us to accomplish Your plans and purposes, that Lord, we would have that extreme power, that exciting promise, that extensive provision, that extraordinary peace that would produce in us that ecstatic praise. God, would You be the center and the focus. Lord, not just during this time, Christmas, but every day that we have left while we're on this earth. We love You. We praise You. We thank You. We bless You. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.